being a refugee leaves you with a certain degree of insecurity, which never really quite leaves a refugee. I think whoever you would talk to, they would make the same point. And in my case, to try and fight this kind of insecurity, it meant that, you know, I've always applied myself with great energy and uh, I hope a fairly workable brain um, to these situations that I found myself in, you know, trying to prove to others, but above all to myself, <laughs> that I'm capable of doing quite a lot of things. And I think in that kind of way, my reporting and, and the way I've, my career has um, developed, that has something to do with that uh, basic sort of sense of trying to overcome this uh, sense of insecurity. Between 1938 and 1940, in an operation which became known as the Kindertransport, the United Kingdom offered sanctuary to perhaps 10,000 Jewish children from Nazi Germany and Nazi-occupied Europe. One of those children, a nine-year-old from Vienna called Hella Pick, would become one of her adopted country's most distinguished reporters. The journalistic career described by Hella Pick in her memoir Invisible Walls is the kind of thing that makes people want to be journalists. She began reporting from West Africa in the 1950s and subsequently worked mostly for The Guardian, covering the United States, the United Nations and Eastern Europe, among other datelines, meeting and in some cases befriending many crucial historical figures. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Hella Pick on The Big Interview. First of all, Hella Pick, welcome to the big interview. It's quite often the case with our guests that it's difficult to know where to start, but with, with your career in particular. So I, I did want to start at the start. And why, of all the things you could have decided to be, you decided to be a journalist? Or was it one of those things which I have found is often the case, it sort of gets decided for people. People end up, often the best journalists become journalists more or less by accident. Well, it certainly happened with me. It was completely by accident. I did not have the great ambition to become a media expert while I was at university. And when I first graduated, um, I did some research work for one of my professors. And then I went to work for a um, company or rather an institution called the Colonial Development Corporation and I got involved in market research for exports and development in West Africa. And um, I was doing this, I gather, quite well because I discovered that my immediate superior had written very glowingly of me and that I had a future in this kind of work. However, I did not think I had a future in that work because I really did not enjoy the sort of regular nine-to-five job idea. I wanted more freedom. And so I started looking for other jobs. And one day I answered an advertisement in a weekly magazine for a market uh, editor, marketing editor, commercial editor rather, of a of a weekly newspaper called um, West Africa. And I thought, huh, I know about West Africa. So I applied for the job. And lo and behold, my first job in journalism had a grand title attached to it, commercial editor. (laughs) (laughs) And um, this uh, soon involved by going out 
to West Africa. The magazine West Africa at that time was owned by the Daily Mirror organization, and they had uh, several daily newspapers in what was then still West African colonies. And so I've had my first experience of Nigeria and of what was then still called the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana and so on. And because I could speak French, I also started going to the French African, so to speak, colonies. This was in the late uh, 1950s. goes back rather a long time, I'm afraid. And all those countries at that time were negotiating for their independence. And I soon got involved, not just in the sort of commercial aspects of West Africa and coffee trade and so on and so forth, but in the actual politics of the these constitutional negotiations. This would have been an extraordinary undertaking for any young person to attempt now, but... This is, as you said, this is the early 1950s. You are embarking on a career as a West Africa correspondent, as as a young woman who's who's grown up largely in Britain. How legitimate or plausible a career option did that seem? There had been, of course, great female foreign correspondents before then. One thinks of uh, Claire Hollingworth or Martha Gellhorn. But but nonetheless, this this must have seemed an extraordinarily unlikely ambition. It wasn't my ambition. I fell into it. I fell into it. And I had a whale of a time. <laughs> I mean, I was certainly the only European woman, woman covering that particular period of time in those African countries. And it was thrilling. There were just a, a small group of French and British and American journalists who were also covering these independence, these constitutional changes in, in these countries. And at first, of course, they were very suspicious of me, a newcomer who probably complete greenhorn. But I think I must have learned quite rapidly, and they made me very much part of their own group. And so I found myself, to some degree, a pioneer of a, a fairly attractive, I may say so, young woman <laughs> who was, you know, talking to the heads of then the, the governments, like people like Kwame Nkrumah, who was one of the sort of early freedom fighters in West Africa, and uh, Sekutore, a very controversial leader in what was then French Guinea. And in those days, security was not a great sort of problem. You could phone these people easily, you could meet them easily. There were few restraints and few people who were watching over the watchers. <laughs> so um, it was an interesting time. <laughs> well, you are already making every journalist listening to this uh, incredibly jealous uh, for the opportunity to have worked at such a, an unfettered time. But you, you go on from there to assemble this extraordinary career covering diplomacy and international politics all over the world. But I did wonder if... You ever saw yourself as a part, not merely as one of the few women doing this, but you're moving among what I guess is mostly this cast of globe-trotting foreign correspondents from fairly secure, privileged countries and upbringings, whereas you had direct experience yourself of having been on 
you know, the receiving end of of what happens when things really break down. You were, you arrived in the United Kingdom on the on the Kinder transport from Austria. Did that early experience of having been a refugee in, inform the way that you reported politics and diplomacy? I guess you, that insight you would have had into what this can actually mean for real people who can't just pack up and go home like most journalists can. Well, that, of course, is true. But I think in the end, I got just simply got caught up in the, <laughs> in the excitements and the interesting uh, news that I was gathering and writing about and trying to interpret as intelligently as possible. I think what really, since you mentioned the fact that I was a kind of transport child, it meant that I was, I was born in Austria. I was uprooted from my roots at the age of 10, started an entirely new life in a completely new environment. And I think what I've concluded and what I've also written about in, in my memoir, which we may mention as we go on in this conversation. Please, please go right ahead and mention its title <laughs> well, out loud right, well, out loud right uh, now. Well, this, this is a book that was first published in, in Britain now just over a year, a year ago and a few months ago in German as well. It's called Invisible Walls. And the point about the Invisible Walls title is that, and this goes back to your original question about the impact that my early experience had on my later life, it is that being a refugee leaves you with a certain degree of insecurity, which never really quite leaves a refugee. I think whoever you would talk to, they would make the same point. And in my case, to try and fight this kind of insecurity, it meant that, you know, I've always applied myself with great energy and, uh, I hope, a fairly workable brain um, to the situations that I found myself in, you know, trying to prove to others, but above all to myself, <laughs> that I'm capable of doing quite a lot of things. And I think in that kind of way, my reporting and, and the way I've, my career has um, developed, that has something to do with that uh, basic sort of sense of trying to overcome this uh, sense of insecurity. Well, when you think back, though, from the, the regions and, and the periods you, you covered, does one stand out as a particular favourite any more than the others? And it is, as as readers of your book will uh, discover, quite a, a list you can be choosing from. <laughs> well, there is quite a long list to choose from. And, you know, I have to confess, this is not the first time I've been asked <laughs> this particular question. But I think when I think back on it, I think probably the most outstanding period for me was after the Vatican acquired the Polish Pope, Pope, mm. Pope Wojtyla. And with him, I rather, he, soon after he became Pope, he made a grand sort of return tour of his own, of his native country, Poland. And he made this journey a second time as well. And on each occasion, I covered that. And I think that to me was one of the sort of great experiences because one could visibly see the Cold War beginning to move towards its closure because that was the first time that really masses of people turned up for the Pope to participate in the Roman Catholic masses that he was conducting, but that he was reminding the world and the Poles 
people turn out for and were reminding the world that they realized communism was, could not last forever. There was another, a freer world available. As the Pope came here to Yasnagora today, his congregation waited to discover whether he would continue his excursion into the politics of Eastern Europe. John Paul has emphasized the reality. In Poland, at least, politics and religion are inseparable. And I think it really was the beginning of the end of the Cold War. And that's why I think those two tours of Poland with the Pope were something that will always stand out in my mind. That's an interesting moment to choose because, as you know, the default setting or the stereotypical default setting of journalists is that we we tend to be cynics. But you, you have you've picked there a moment of great hope. Well, it was a moment of hope because you suddenly saw that people had the courage to stand up for themselves and for their rights, and the Pope had the courage to stand out against the communist world and say, there's another way of life, and uh, I represent a freer society, a society that can think outside the communist mold. And you're free to express yourselves, and they were free to express themselves. Nobody could have stopped the the Pope's battalions at that point. Uh, we all know that Stalin made fun of, of, the, of the Pope's mm-hmm. so-called battalions. Well, here he proved that he could actually bring them out, and they were there. I mean, I, I've, I've never seen so many people so often... <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but as somebody who chronicled events like that and who met many of the people at the centre of them, you mentioned earlier some of those West African independence leaders, people like Nkrumah and Toure, and they were very, very far from the last uh, prime ministers, presidents, princes, etc. That, that you dealt with. Where did you get to on that question of whether individuals shape the times or the times shape an individual? Can, can one person at the right moment really change the world? Well, it can certainly trigger change. Mm. It can't actually change, but they can certainly trigger change. I mean, I've no doubt that, for instance, Kwame Nkrumah, the Ghanaian or Gold Coast leader, triggered something in in the minds of millions of people in Africa that freedom and independence were possible and that these were goals for which you had to fight. And my last warning to you is that you ought to stand firm behind us so that we can prove to the world that when the African is given a chance, he can show to the world that he's somebody. The trouble is that very many of these charismatic people end up either being eaten up by corruption or being assassinated. They don't always survive beyond the point where they have re- they have achieved. It's as if they fade away once they have achieved what uh, they set out to do. Uh, you did also mm-hmm. meet a, a great many of the, the less praiseworthy leaders, and, and one I'm thinking of that I'm, I'm just curious about, although it's arguable that in his case he, he met exactly the inglorious end that he had coming to him, uh, was Nikolai... what's coming uh, up. D- d- <laughs> this is Nikolai Ceausescu, obviously. Yes. Um, I, I, just, I, I don't have a cl- clever question here. What is it like to try and interview Nikolai Ceausescu? Impossible. (laughs) It was one one of the really odd experiences of my sort of interviewing life because, uh, first of all, uh, 
before the interview even was confirmed, I had to negotiate with a committee of uh, party hacks what my questions would be. <laughs> and it was only when they agreed that we agreed on the questions that I, I would be able to put to him that the interview was actually scheduled. And I was then, you know, told to, um, I didn't have to wear a hat, but I should wear gloves and things like that. It was it was all very, very formal. And then when I finally was face-to-face -face with this uh, really nasty little man that Francesca <laughs> was, um, we, we sat uh, in sort of chairs that were placed uh, parallel so that I couldn't actually look at him directly with uh, some kind of a chest between the two of us to, to make quite sure that I wouldn't physically attack him, I assume. I was told that um, I would not have an interpreter, but I would be given a transcript later. <laughs> and he sat there with um, sheaths of paper in front of him, and when I put my first negotiated question, he pulled out a piece of paper and read from it. And then when it came to the second question, I still kept to the script. And after that, I decided this really was no point in this at all. So I, <laughs> I put a, a question that had not been anticipated, and uh, his interpreter was completely flummoxed by this unexpected event. And Ceausescu then pulled out another piece of paper, which probably had absolutely no relation to the question I'd put. And... You know, this went on for about half an hour, and then it was all of this wonderful, beautiful occasion was at an end. <laughs> because and I, we never, the Guardian never published the interview. I, I, I never had the pleasure myself, but just everything I'd, I'd read about him or seen of him, he just came across as this extremely dreary little bureaucrat. And I'm just wondering if, it went, once you saw him up close, did it make any more sense as to how he, of all people, had ended up? in charge of an entire country. I think he was just malign, and I, I suspect that the real force there was not so much he but his wife, who certainly not just supported what he was doing, but I think absolutely dictated to him what he had to do. But, you know, the man was a megalomaniac. I mean, he had a whole museum devoted to presents that he'd been given from people around the world. As I was saying earlier, you, you've met a great many people, uh, both uh, good and bad, who have been in, in charge of great events. Once you got to know them a bit beyond the journalist-politician uh, relationship, did that lead you to start thinking differently about how politics and diplomacy is conducted? You, you struck up quite a friendship, I understand, with Willy Brandt, uh, Chancellor of, of West Germany, which, which made you, I think you've written before, reconsider your your, I guess, quite understandably mixed feelings about Germany. Yes, that he certainly did do, but I didn't change my mind about his qualities. Even before I ever met him, I had, from what I knew about him, I had a very positive view of him, and everything that uh, I learned by getting to know him better reinforced that view. On the few occasions where I got to know some of these political leaders reasonably well. Uh, yes, of course, you looked at every decision that came from them in a, not in a slightly different way, but I think you, I 
hope I brought a bit more understanding to what might have motivated certain decisions and, and what they were getting at. But um, I don't think in itself the fact that I got to know Willy Brandt made much of a difference to the way I reported about uh, German affairs. I think, if anything, I may have brought a bit more understanding to it. Did you find yourself, I, I guess, covering them in any more forgiving way? Because I, I have mixed feelings about myself about this conventional wisdom that that should always be adversarial, that every journalist should just assume that every politician is a, a bungler, a liar and a crook. Some of them obviously are and should be treated as such, but I'm never quite convinced that that default assumption enlarges anyone's understanding of anything. Well, I could uh, admit some people certainly argued that I was influenced in the way I wrote about Poland because uh, I got to know Mieczysław um, Rakowski, who started off as a, as a journalist and one of the few journalists in the communist bloc who had a degree of freedom about how he was analysing and writing about events in the communist bloc. Uh, and he later become, became prime minister of Poland and, you know, was always very, very prominent for, for a number of years until he completely fell from grace at the end. But uh, people always accused me of bringing more understanding and more positive um, view of what the Polish government, uh, the communist uh, government, was uh, still doing. While others uh, felt that when Poland was under martial, under martial law for, for several, uh, for a number of months, I think I'm, my analysis of what was going on was probably more positive than a lot of other people's um, interpretation. And I was certainly accused by three Polish journalists here in Britain of um, completely sort of falling for the propaganda, and I had a difficult time defending myself. But I still think that I was right. <laughs> That's another matter. <laughs> We've mentioned, and we will doubtless be mentioning again, your memoir, Invisible Walls. There's another book I wanted to ask you about. This is your, your book about Austria. The title, Guilty Victim, I think sums up the premise of that book uh, quite well. But do you still have at all mixed feelings about the country you were forced to leave when you were very young? Far less mixed than uh, even that title suggests. And, <laughs> and that title was, was already written when I was, had much more, more positive than negative feelings about Austria. No, I, I've realised that I really, even though I say I was completely uprooted from Austria, that there are some sort of roots left behind as well. <laughs> I spent a lot of time going to Austria when I was still reporting for The Guardian and got to know um, people like Bruno Kreisky, the rather flamboyant Chancellor of Austria, and many of the, its other leaders. Austria is a very small, has a very small inner group of people, mm. <laughs> so you get to know them all quite well. 
And I feel, and then, you know, I wrote the, this book, Guilty Victim, and then I also wrote a biography of the Nazi hunter, Simon Wiesenthal. So I was spending quite a lot of time in Austria. And the more I went, the more at home I felt. And I'm really, I feel, you know, completely divided these days. I'm, I'm really very happy every time I set foot in Austria and uh, feel very much at home now there as well. But, you know, I'm doesn't mean that I'm not aware of, of its many faults, and I am actually just in the process of writing a magazine uh, article for, for another British magazine um, um, about uh, this sort of state of anti-Semitism in Austria today, whether, because as you probably know, Austria really is often identified almost with mm. by definition as, of being anti-Semitic. And I thought it's time to assess the situation as it really is today. And I do think it's improved very much for the better. But of course, there's always a remnant of doubt about what is going on in Austria. Right-wing support is, is, is very strong in Austria. And um, even though they're more concerned with mi migration and anti-Semitism is no longer really the key to their politics, um, one can't ignore their existence. On that subject, uh, you, you mentioned the biography you wrote of uh, Simon Wiesenthal, the, the the great Nazi hunter, and you've written before, and it's it's a question I ask with, uh, I hope, due humility, because I'm, I'm not Jewish myself, but you, you talked about how this, to you, was living up to what you described as your responsibilities as a Jew. What, what did you mean by that? I think it meant that uh, I had spent most of my life not really confronting the fact that I was Jewish, that I, I never t talk about it very much, uh, even though I realize that most people probably know that I'm likely to be Jewish. Uh, I've never gone out of my way to, to say it. I'm completely 100% secular Jew. Uh, the religion to me is, is it's not part of my existence, not part of my being. But I think, you know, again, as a consequence of being uh, a refugee, a Jewish refugee, I, I wanted to hide my, my Jewish identity for a long, long time. And when I started working on the uh, Simon Wiesenthal biography, I was confronted with my sort of own identity problems. And the more time I spent with him and, you know, learning what he'd done and so on, all of this started drawing me finally back into the acknowledgement of my Jewish culture and the need not just to acknowledge it, but to be proud of it and to stop hiding myself. I started working for a very prominent publisher, George Weidenfeld, who had a similar background to, to my own, except that he was several years older than I was, so that when he came to Britain, he was already a, an adult. He, too, was a secular Jew, but he was a very conscious Jew, totally committed to Israel and fought anti-Semitism uh, intensively, especially in his later life. And as I got to know him better and working with him, I finally sort of found my true identity without trying to, to hide things and became much more proud as well as aware of my Jewish identity. I, I don't have the same passions um, about uh, Zionism as uh, George Weidenfeld had, 
But um, at least I think now I have accepted my Jewish identity as part of several other identities. I still don't think it's the it's the identity. But uh, anyway, I'm now happily happy to acknowledge who I really am. <laughs> Um, On that neat tying it all up with a bow device, uh, Hilla Pick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hello, Pick. Thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Emma Searle and edited by Emily Sands and Tamsin Howard. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.